Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 127, and today we have a very special interview with Sean McCann of the band Great Big C from Newfoundland and uh, Canada, and uh, his lovely wife, Andrea Aragon. Uh, so we have kind of a uh, three-person interview going on today is something we don't do very often and uh, very important and poignant subject matter at this time in particular, but always uh, talking again. We've talked uh, off and on throughout uh, our episodes about addiction, overcoming addiction. It's something that uh, a lot of people struggle with. It affects a lot of lives. And uh, so they have this book out called One Good Reason, A Memoir of Addiction and Recovery, Music and Love. And I love the title. Uh, excellent book. They actually sent me a physical copy of the book. A very uh, intriguing book. It kind of pulls you in. And they're very open and vulnerable with their story and multiple stories throughout their lives, childhood, some trauma. And uh, we talk all about that in the interview as well. But uh, go get the book as well. It's available now in the U.S. Uh, just was released uh, September 30th. So a uh, pretty new release here in the U.S. Go grab it uh, while you can. And uh, Amazon and wherever you get books. Again, one good reason, Sean McCann and Andrea Aragon. And before we jump into that interview, I want to remind you, as always, you are absolutely priceless. You are not alone. Don't forget that. It's so easy to forget it day by day. You could feel that way uh, one day. Hey, I'm priceless and I'm not alone. And little things happen that, that eat away at our feelings and uh, whatever throughout our lives. And that's why we've got to do the work. We talk about that in this interview, doing the work to strive to stay on top of all this stuff and to, to maintain those feelings and those truths in our lives. Uh, so again, uh, just remember, and when we say priceless, uh, the riches are found in you. Uh, your worth far exceeds all the little monetary systems of this world. It's all puny compared to your deep price. We've, we even had a uh, an episode where we talked all about your prices. So go back. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, uh, but uh, go ahead go ahead and go back and find that and uh, listen to that one as well. And, uh, of course, I want to get into our challenges. Study. Uh, keep studying. Start studying. I always say it that way. Uh, I've been listening to some some great audiobooks. I even pulled up some some Tony Robbins stuff recently, some of the old school uh, stuff that he's done, some of his live seminars as well as books, audiobooks, and so on. Uh, but find what rings true to you, what touches your heart and uh, inspires you. I promise the studying alone, even if it's 10 minutes a day, just in the morning or in your commute to work or whatever your situation is, find a time while you're having breakfast. It helps to do in the morning because that's the start of most people's day and uh, kind of carry some things with you throughout the day. And, you know, if you have other times throughout the day or you have another commute or picking up kids or whatever, you can uh, listen to some more uh, of inspirational material, audiobooks and educational material and uh, even fiction and things as well. But you got to stimulate your mind and your soul in a lot of positive ways to thwart off these difficult forces of the world. And the uh, second challenge, of course, make great moments, uh, surprise loved ones and this is generally with the people that matter most in our lives. Make these great moments, make them count, and uh, just a constant consciousness that our time here is limited and we have to make the most of it. Uh, so find ways to do that, whether that's uh, surprising your spouse or loved ones uh, with some sort of gift or even just a note. You, some of us may not have financial resources to go buy something necessarily, but a lot of times the best gifts are, are heartfelt messages or draw a picture or <laughs> whatever you can do. Uh, write a song if you're a musician. Uh, Sean McCann, by the way, in this interview, he's a musician. 
this band, Great Big C, uh, that have sold millions and millions of, of records and uh, also real big on Spotify and other places as well. Um, so that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring them on because, you know, I can always relate to musicians a little bit because I am one or I try to be. And uh, the, the last challenge, I digress, the last challenge, my friends, uh, let's keep doing this podcast together. Love you and appreciate you, and thank you for spending time with us. Let's jump into this interview. Uh, this is a good one. They're all good ones, uh, but this is a very special interview for me, and uh, I think we touched on some really deep topics, and they really, really opened up here. So we got to honor and appreciate them for that. So without further ado, here's our interview with Sean McCann and Andrea Aragon, husband and wife from the book One Good Reason, and go pick that up. Here we go. We are so pleased and privileged to welcome Sean McCann and Andrea Aragon, co-authors of a book they wrote together, One Good Reason, A Memoir of Addiction and Recovery, Music and Love. And, uh, you know, as a musician myself and a person, you know, my audience knows that I'm way into music. I'm a drummer. Uh, but also, we've done some things regarding addiction uh, in the past on this podcast. And it's something that is is such a, I don't know, poignant topic at this time. Uh, wouldn't you say, guys? That's one of the reasons I want to invite you on the podcast. As far as this this topic, yeah, it's always a it's always a poignant topic, but especially now, I think when the the pressures, especially on on addicts, are are even higher in COVID days. You know, I yeah, anyway. yeah, in the early days of the COVID thing, which was it seems like ten years ago now, but it was back in March for most of us. Uh, <laughs> I, I read some things about, you know, alcohol consumption and purchasing was, was up 30 to 40% year over year from March of, of last year, um, which I think speaks volumes. It's not like it was up 5%. It was up well over 30 to 40%. Um, and, and that's just alcohol. You know, we don't have stats on illicit illegal drugs and things like that, but I'm sure those are similar in some ways. Uh, but you two have a very interesting story, and and I am so grateful you guys actually sent me a physical copy of this book. And I must say, it's an incredible book, very well made physically, first of all, but also, uh, you know, great cover, great pictures in the middle for those of us who uh, <laughs> like to look at pictures too. So there's this full color section of pictures uh, around the middle of the book, and uh, just an excellent story. I want to talk to you guys about your background. Uh, you two met, I understand, about 2002. Is that right? Yeah, it was, I think, 2000, was it 2002 or 2001? I think it was early 1900s. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask him. He might get himself in trouble. He won't, <laughs> he won't remember. <laughs> we men foul these things up sometimes. First World War was just ending. I think. <laughs> oh, this like was the first pandemic. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Spanish flu back then. You guys have lived through two. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, early 2000s is when we met, for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we were on tour in, uh, in uh, my uh, my old band, Great Big C, which is a, a pretty intense party band, a Canadian party band. We're from Newfoundland, which is as far east as you can get and still be in North America. It's an island off the coast, and mm -hmm. we drank a lot. It was permanent pandemic time for us. <laughs> we were always isolated and alone. Um, yeah. But I ended up, we were on tour in America, and I ended up uh, meeting Andrea in Vail, Colorado, wow. after a show in a bar. Uh-huh. Well, there you go. Super romantic. It's the first time it's ever happened, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, no one's ever met in a bar before. Uh, after but a show. Big-time musician. Uh, did you know who he was, Andrea, when you met? 
No, I no, I didn't even know that their band was going to be there. I well, first of all, I'd never heard of Newfoundland. Uh, I mean, yeah. I had no idea that the, that it existed. Um, I'm yeah. originally from Minnesota, and so Eastern Atlant North Atlantic islands in from Canada in Canada are weren't my specialty. But yeah. I was there to see a different band. Um, there was three bands playing on the bill that night, and I was there to see a different band and just. Happened to lock my eyes on Mr. Yellow Shirt as I referred to him. I had an excellent shirt on. <laughs> it was yellow, apparently. And decided I was going to drag him back home that night, oh. which was my first and only one night stand. I would like to say for oh. all those mothers out there. Yeah. Well, see, you guys, you guys opened up to our big before details. Before it got out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> now, was this yellow shirt yellow to start the day, or did it uh, <laughs> evolve with the drinking and? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so if you don't mind me asking, Andrea, what band were you there to see? <laughs> I was there to see a band from California called the Young Dubliners. Oh, okay. Who I had befriended um, through to a friend of mine, and, and I'd seen them a couple times when they were in Minnesota. So I, I knew the band, and I had to, they had given us comp tickets. Okay. So I had to go thank them for that. Okay. Yeah, they used to be friends of mine. But not anymore now. <laughs> yeah, after this story, goodness gracious, we have to write a letter. Um, <laughs> well, interesting. Well, and since we've got both of you on, I'd like to talk kind of individually a little bit, and ladies first, perhaps. Uh, you talk about growing up in Minnesota. My mom and her family originally from Minnesota. I was back there last year. Uh, in fact, my oh, grandparents nice. are. Yeah, my grandparents are still around. They're in the early '90s and secluded in a facility with this COVID thing going on, so they're not happy unfortunately but um but talk whereabouts to me about minnesota. minnesota what's that oh i said whereabouts in minnesota well um kind of near the near saint paul um and oh, yeah. sure. you know they got around a little bit my grandfather traveled a lot for business and work and so she has three sisters four girls total and uh so kind of a drama show of girls but you know no offense <laughs> ladies I, I i grew up all boys i have two boys myself so i i don't know i'm just guessing yeah. <laughs> from what i hear you got two boys yes yeah um minnesota was great it was you know it's we're, we're in ottawa now so ottawa and where i grew up in minnesota are very similar it, you Imagine. know lots of uh a lot of people don't leave because they like it and it's it's a beautiful place it's cold 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 a lot of the times <laughs> yeah a beautiful falls and and great i loved it uh i loved being there but i had to get out does that make any sense <laughs> yeah um i think I people had, could relate i had a pretty yeah i had a pretty um i don't want to say intense but we had a interesting family dynamic as i detail in the book uh, my dad was a vietnam vet who uh surprising to him had PTSD, not surprising to those around us. And my mom was more of a um, let's just pretend it's okay kind of person. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to uh, make any waves or bring up any issues, uh, whether they be my dad's dalliances with other women or uh, his anger or any number of things that were going on in our chaotic family. So mm -hmm. as much as I loved Minnesota being there, I I definitely when I could get out, I needed to get out for my own health. Yeah, I understand that. So now you talk a little bit in the book. Um, was it your family? Your your dad got around a little bit 
uh, I remember there was a part where you guys were in, it sounds like you were in Utah, um, or he was at least, <laughs> uh, and in the Air Force, is that right? Yeah, he was in the Army, but what happened is that, so I was born in Utah. Both of my parents are from Utah, uh -huh. and I was born there and lived there until I was one, and then we moved to Minnesota. But before oh, I see. Uh, my sister or I were born, yeah, he they were in Utah, and then he went off to war, came back, then he finished out his time in California at, at an Army base in California, and then they moved promptly. As soon as he was done with his time in the Army, he um, they moved up to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And, and back in those days, uh, thanks for explaining that, we didn't, I, as far as I understand it, we still didn't have this term PTSD. I mean, because I, I think back, my grandfather on the other side served in World War II, and they just, they, they had terms like shell shock and things like that. Um, but it sounds like you, you suffered a little bit and uh, more than a little bit <laughs> from what you're explaining. Um, and And then... Uh, tell me about some of the lessons learned from that situation and or just experiences that because you said you loved in Minnesota, but you had to leave. Uh, I don't I don't know if you want to dig in on that dynamic more. You've explained a few details. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what what it was like growing up? No, and you're right. You're exactly right there. PTSD was not a common um, certainly not a common diagnosis, and it was not a common phrase being thrown around at all during that time. That was early 80s, <clears throat> or yeah. mid-80s, rather. Mm -hmm. And um, the way I dealt with all the chaos in our family is I started controlling my what I started using food to control whatever I could control. Mm -hmm. So since that was the only thing that I could really control was what went in my body and what went out of my body, that's how I did it. And so I got pretty deep into an eating disorder, uh, first with bulimia and then with anorexia bulimia, which is, you know, not eating very much and then throwing up whatever you do eat. Yes. Um, and then that went into a um, cutting I started yeah. doing some cutting when I was a junior in high school. Again, this is all control and about feeling pain on the outside that I was feeling on the inside. So there was a lot of um, mental health issues happening with me that I wasn't able to deal with. And so the only way I knew how to deal with it was physically hurting myself mm. um, to try and feel that pain on the outside. And yeah. um, so once, once I stopped doing that after a pretty... Um, pretty intense moment I had with cutting my wrists um, and a friend stopped me. I uh, just continued down the eating disorder path and as I saw that going forward and forward I knew I had to I just knew I had to leave Minnesota. I was in a family business that was pretty toxic and it was mm. it was just too much and I just I finally made the really hard decision to to move to a place that I I knew nothing about and had no friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was Colorado. Okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear about all that. I think a lot of people can relate in various ways. You know, I've known people who've engaged in some of those activities. Um, and, and it was something that was kind of foreign to me. It's not something I've engaged. In. I've dealt with my share of life's pain and family trauma in some ways. Uh, but the way you explain it, I think, is an interesting uh, eye-opener for those of us who haven't both engaged in it or understood it completely uh, as far as the inner pain coming out on the outside. Maybe in some ways, I don't want to, 
assert myself too much, but tr to try in some way to bring the pain out. Uh, if there was any way to, to uproot it from within you, it sounds like some of what I'm gleaning from what you're explaining. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to dig in too much on these uh, ugly details of, of what you went through, but it's, it's good for people to know and, and to realize that you guys are making yourself very vulnerable with this story, with this book. And uh, that's one of the reasons it's going to be such, such a, a big uh, impact because uh, you release the books releasing uh, this month, right? Did it already release in the U.S.? Yeah, it's, yeah it was uh, September 30th, actually. Oh, yeah. September 30th. Just, just okay. recently. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of this stuff is covered in very great detail in the book. And um, anything else you want to cover about your upbringing childhood and what brought you to uh, the place where we met Sean? Because then we'll back up with Sean and talk about some of his uh, background, too, that's covered at length in the book. But is there anything else well, we want to address? Important. Yeah. Yeah, I think what's important is something that you kind of alluded to in your question, your very first question about to me about my upbringing is um, learning how to deal with my dad as a young woman and a teenager and as a young woman and his heavy drinking really um, solidified my ability to be an enabler um, mm. when I met Sean. And I never, I never look, I never for one minute looked at it that way until I started writing this book. And I think that's a really important point uh, for people who are family members of addicts, so that they can realize that there is probably something in your history that is has led you to this person, or into maybe be in their orbit. Um, yeah. And it's it's eye opening. You want to talk about eye opening? That was that was one of my aha moments of whoa, I guess I really did play a part in mm -hmm. both of these men's. It's pretty much your fault. I, <laughs> my whole drinking problem you know, we go. can be traced directly to you. <laughs> yeah. As you can tell, Phil, we, we have a lot of humor in our life. Well, now. you've got to. You're my enabler in chief. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got to have uh, so humor. I Yes, yeah. As you explain we're that, we're both still here, right? And we're happy. Yeah, so and, that, that's, that's, and that's it's very really clear. Matters. Yeah, it's clear listening to you that you, <laughs> you seem at peace and happy at, at this place. Uh, isn't it interesting that as a, in relationships that uh, a, a lot of times that brings out some of our deepest uh, just stuff, whatever that is, good and bad. And, uh, and, and you start to understand and see yourself in a different light and more deeply, perhaps, because this relationship dynamic uh, and, you know, starting way back with your father and, and then later on here with Sean uh, kind of showed some of your tendencies and some of how you coped and, 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 and the opportunity to, for everyone to be better if, if you embrace the moment when these things come up and you realize, you know, self-awareness, oh, this is what's going on. This is my part of both a problem and maybe a solution. Uh, it's interesting you yeah, explain I mean, that. You talk about... You talk about being vulnerable. I mean, that was 100% necessary for both of us mm -hmm. in order to get to the root of our issues and then grow and move forward. Yeah. And that's yeah. the last thing I'll say about all of your stuff. <laughs> I'll, well, let, I'll let you ask Sean some questions now. <laughs> no, and I appreciate that. And it's, you know, it's we want to cover because you're both very important and very important part of this book. Um, so, Sean, <laughs> my, my son, by the way, his name's Sean, same spelling without the little accent on the E. <laughs> but Sean, uh, nice. I have an 11-year-old Sean named after you. Uh, 
<clears throat> I'm just kidding, but I wish I could say that. Uh, <laughs> it would be a cool little detailed transition here. Um, but I like the name, Sean, first of all. Uh, talk to me about your, <clears throat> excuse me, your upbringing. Uh, I know there's a lot of very deep religious roots there and some things that happened and some trauma, but maybe you can tell in your own words going back as far uh, as you'd like. I understand. I think you were born in 1967. If you want to go back uh, as far as you want and, and talk to us about that and what yeah. this all contributes with this book and the story. I was born in the summer of love, 1967, and uh, I was <clears throat> baptized and embraced and entered into the Catholic Church at the early age of four days old, mm -hmm. where uh, decisions that would impact the rest of my life and my eternal soul <laughs> for all eternity, uh, these were decisions that were made for me at four days of age. Uh, when I was uh, indoctrinated into the church. And as I said earlier, Newfoundland is an island off the coast. It's a big island. It's as big as Texas. It's in the North Atlantic. Uh, mm -hmm. It's populated 50% Irish, 50% English, pretty much, right down the middle. Mm. Uh, so Protestant, Catholic. But both those cultures are very, very um, pub cultures. They're very much in Beer and drinking is a big part of England and Ireland. Yep. And in Newfoundland, they came together with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. um, Newfoundland, where the city has one city, really, St. John's. St. John's has the most bars per capita in North America. And, oh. um, you know, there's no, there was never a taboo about over drinking or anything like that. People drink early and they, they, drink, they drink hard. They're heavy drinkers. It's just a cultural thing there. So... This all came together in an interesting way for me because I, um, I we were a devout family, and uh, which which allowed for um, when I was in grade nine, I was sexually assaulted by our, our parish priest who'd who'd, uh, who'd endeared himself to me and, and and my family. So he, as a priest, he was in a position to be able to fool us that way, mm -hmm. and um, the impact of that was that I very early, earlier than most, any of my friends, I became an alcoholic because I, uh, I wanted to, it was a secret I had to, I felt I had to keep. Um, talking about your priest being a sexual molester was not something that was easy to do as a teenager, then or now. Yeah. So uh, alcohol became the out for me. And um, Another interesting thing about Newfoundland is because it's so isolated, I believe this is why, it has a very high per capita rate of uh, musicians, artists, painters, poets. Uh, I think it's because we had to entertain ourselves. We had to be, uh, there's long winters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we, we had to keep ourselves from dying of boredom, really. So there's a lot of uh, hyper-talented people there. And... Um, like there's a, in all the many bars I mentioned, the, the cool thing about the bars in Newfoundland, which is you see it a little bit in Ireland but in, and not so much in England, but there's bands and musicians playing in every bar, and they're good, and covers cheap or free. So mm. I started working in a, in a bar when I was old enough. I was actually wasn't old enough. I was 18. And that's when I was exposed to live music and, and good live music. And that's when I decided to, uh, to, to become a musician, even though I had no training. Mm -hmm. 
but I realized then I wanted to do that and I combined so music became a big habit of mine and I managed to combine that with my alcohol habit <laughs> and uh, form a band called Great Big C which really spoke to both those uh, those those uh, habits mm -hmm. and we we were successful we sold over two million records in, in Canada and we were uh, we were Canada's biggest party band for 20 years yeah that's so great. for me uh, it was a great place you know I always think of it as as an addict it was like winning the lottery to to find myself and I'm sure it was no accident it was a place I, I wanted to put myself it was a reality that I created for myself Mm -hmm. And it was all done in a, in a way to uh, to not deal with and not cope with uh, a very painful secret. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for explaining all that, too. Again, I honor both of you for being so vulnerable and open on these very deep, intimate topics, to be quite honest. And uh, I think it's real helpful to others who may have some parallel in their life, some sort of pain and trauma, which I think most do in some way. Uh, won't necessarily all be the same details, but um, I, th I think you're, you talk about enabling from, from an addict perspective, but I think in, on the flip side of that coin, we're, we're in a place now with this book and everything you're doing, enabling people to be able to face their demons, so to speak, and uh, maybe follow in your footsteps a little bit to, to find their answers. I, I have a lot of uh, thoughts and questions as we, <laughs> as you explained what you did and Andrea explained what you did. Um, I, I don't know how to address the whole sexual abuse topic. This is something that we've heard so much in recent decades. There's been, there, there was an Oscar winning movie that came out a few years ago surrounding this, I think in, about the, the church in Philadelphia and, uh, what do, I, I didn't grow up in the Catholic Church. I've experienced some of it. I've, I lived in Chile for a while. I went in some of the cathedrals and things like that. But talk to me about that dynamic, if you would. I don't want to ask a real specific question, but I know your church was very deeply involved. You said something about about half your family was pretty much uh, deeply involved and or employed by the church. Um, and how did all that feed into what you dealt with, your pain and coping mechanisms? I know that's a very multi-layered question. <laughs> yeah, the church was by far the biggest, uh, in the, the wealthiest and most powerful industry in Newfoundland, and I would say Ireland too. And, uh, mm -hmm. and England has its own history of reformation. Uh, but the church, again, was loomed large in our history and our culture, and, uh, and not just the Catholic church, but religion in general, you know. And... Um, I understand, I've come to understand that religion is a, is a way for people and has been historically for us to deal with questions that there really are no definitive answers for. So I understand why it exists uh, in the absence, in the absence of, of, um, of concrete answers for very difficult questions. And I mean questions like why are we here and where do we go when we die? The re religion you know, and variety of various world religions provide those answers. So, and the alternative is to accept that you that there is no answer. So, I would preface what I'm going to say next by I understand why it's there. Unfortunately, there's various. These are also uh, most religions anyway are also corporate entities, and they earn money, and they thrive on control and influence in people's lives. And in the Catholic Church's um, 
business plan, for lack of a better description. Um, they used, they were hardwired and they used techniques like confession and forgiveness. And they, in the Catholic Church, you can't go to Mass and receive the body of Christ until you're in a state of grace, which can only be granted by a priest. He has the power to forgive your sins. Which and, allows you to go into heaven. Which allows you not to go to hell, more importantly, because it wasn't ever so much... We didn't learn much about heaven growing up, but we <laughs> learned a, an awful lot about hell. Mm. So it was, a, it was a lot of negative emotions that... Uh, guilt, shame, fear. This is, this is my recollection of my religion. I still remember most of the prayers off by heart, like it was memorization, but it was strict. And it, and it, and it, uh, and the, and the priests and, uh, people in power. And one of my great, great uncle was a bishop. Uh, mm -hmm. and my, and, you know, I have family who are nuns. And, um, so our family in particular were, were probably of the, if, we were in the top 10 percentile of those who were actively involved. We were early voters, you know, we were there. Yeah. And uh, so the indoctrination was deep. Yeah, there was no second guess. There was no question. Yeah. Like whatever the priest said was true. Yeah. That's I mean, that's what it boils down to. And unfortunately, what comes with that when when, you know, you create that environment, which gives people almighty power over other people, over young people. Yes. It's a recipe for disaster. You know, mm -hmm. and and of course, these positions would attract pedophiles. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's 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 easy to see in retrospect, but to go back in time to the early seventies and eighties, it just wasn't even conceivable to to even say words like I'm saying now. Mm. So, uh, and I'm not making excuses for everyone. Well, a lot of people really dropped the ball here, <laughs> but uh, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the big, the big mistake, I, I, I believe that what happened to me was a result of an intergenerational effect. You know, my family had been Catholic. We can trace back, I'm seven generations in Newfoundland before, before we left Ireland, where we were also suffering under the, uh, the, the wrath of the church. I'm sure people lived in fear for years. So mm. I think there's a kind of an argument for, uh, I don't know if it's PTSD exactly, but this blindness, this uh, complete subjugation. This lack of reason, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, when you remove those defenses, you you just you literally don't have much to fight with when it comes to protecting your children. Mm. So I unfortunately was born into that, and yeah. that's uh, a very dangerous thing. And I wanted to speak to that in the book. I wanted to bring that out. Um, religion is like politics, a very difficult subject to bring up today anywhere, you know, and has been for years. But. Yep. And I don't mean to knock anyone's religion. I just wanted to speak to my own experience, but I think it rings true. And I think it helps to say things truthfully mm. and out loud and write them down. And if nothing else, to provoke questions and thoughts about where we really stand and what we really believe and why. Yeah. You know, yeah. because it can go wrong. It can go terribly wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm all about that. I appreciate you explaining more depth. And I think that shines uh, some more light. That was the name of the movie Spotlight back a few years ago. But shining more light from a very personal, intimate experience of your life, your family, uh, in the church and that environment. Uh, for, for those who haven't experienced that, except maybe as an outsider looking in or watching the news or a movie like that, um, it's an interesting set of uh, circumstances that to me sounds like 
and based on now the outcome and aftermath, a kind of a powder keg for you and so many, which again, will reiterate, I know you know this, you're not alone in having gone through some version of what you went through. Uh, there's tons and tons of people who've come forward now. And in some ways, I don't know how that feels to someone like you. Maybe you can answer that, but I don't know if that's in some sick way. I don't know if sick's the right word, but some way relieving to you to realize, oh, I'm not alone, but it's obviously you don't want others to have to have suffered either. But how does that feel knowing now as so many people have come forward having experienced some version of that? Um, I don't know if you've thought about that. I'm guessing you have it in some helpful. way. I mean, it, it makes me realize that I'm not crazy and that I, you know, I wasn't alone. And I guess I carried the secret around a long time, mm-hmm. 35 years. And I think what's happened of late, even with the Me Too uh, movement, and uh, people are being very vocal now. People are, you know, telling their stories. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, a rare example or a specific uh an aberration i was i was part of the norm yeah and uh you know it happens a lot it happened a lot it happens a lot and it'll keep happening until we break it out i mean secrets thrive when they have the cover of darkness and the only way to defeat secrets is to share them so i'm really uh yes i am relieved to a point i feel like you know i'm I, you know, it's it is if it, the worst thing about it is it, it, what we've come to light in the last decade or more is how massive and how systemic the 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 problem of sexual abuse is, especially in the Catholic Church. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, you don't see a lot of while well, you hear many many stories. Uh, you know, my hope honestly is that it. Uh, it hurts them in the pocketbook. Like it, I imagine business is bad for business. And I think if, as they slowly go out of business, less of this will happen. And I think mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And both of you um, f- for your insights and experiences. I, uh, when, when we talk about feeling relieved now, um, and before we get into that, let's talk about the dynamic. Cause you both came into this, you know, meeting in the early two thousands, uh, meeting in a bar, no less, with some demons and some history that maybe sounds to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, like you, you didn't know what to do with. You just had it and you were living your life and doing your best and, and you know, involved in this band and Andrea was doing her best too. But talk to me about the early dynamic of this relationship. Uh, I guess one or both of you can pipe in uh, as a partnership here and not argue hopefully but <laughs> what was the early <laughs> dynamic here that that kind of took place because you, you came in people that you were at the moment and what happened the early dynamic between us was was excellent i mean we were both sean was on tour a lot i would go on tour with him when i could mm-hmm. um we were both quite heavy drinkers and you know the party never ended for us we'd sleep until he had to go to sound check at three or four o'clock in the afternoon and (laughs) party all night sleep again until two in the afternoon i mean it was it was great it was a lot of fun and you know (laughs) we got along fantastically there wasn't a whole lot of in-depth conversation Mm -hmm. um but we were fantastic drinking friends yeah yeah and you know there was (laughs) And we still have sex all the time. That's good. You know, that's pretty much 
<laughs> as married couples all always do during day. a pandemic with kids. <laughs> yeah, well, the party never ends. That's good. You know, it's, um, doesn't make me it blush. Was, it was all good until <laughs> until I got um, until I got pregnant, and then you know, for me, the party immediately stopped. Like the day I found out I was pregnant, I stopped drinking and I stopped smoking. Period. And the sex definitely stopped. Too. <laughs> <laughs> We had, to, we had to stop doing that. Um, yeah. So it that's where we the little fissures in our relationship started to form, and cracks became crevices, became chasms. Um, you know, over the next five to seven years, as as we had another child and and stuff like that, and and our talking became less and less, and our resentment towards each other built and built and built and. Sean kept drinking and I kept being angry and it just finally had to, it had to come to a head at, at some point. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like a really good, Mary, we shouldn't be married. It's a sounds great, terrible. And it's a great book. Well, it, <laughs> it is a great like book. painted so bad. No. <laughs> well, but no, I mean, it's. It sets up to show where we came from. Yeah. Yeah. No. And well, again, and I would say too that. Go ahead. I was just going to say that I, uh, you know, I was a great drinker until I wasn't. You know, I, I uh, it was when I hit my 40s, early 40s, that I just, I, I began to uh, lose control of, I began to have blackouts and lose control of uh, my habit. Because, you know, you, you, can, you can kid yourself and you can try to manage it and tell yourself that you are managing it. But, of course, you're not. You're not the Olympian, Olympic champion drinker that you think you are. I was going to yeah. say, did you ever really have control of your habit? Well, it just, it, it certainly, in my mind, it, I felt like I lost, really lost control. No, it was something that I was, my tolerance level was better. Yeah. But as I turned 40, like, I didn't have blackouts till then. Yeah. And I certainly didn't drink less, you know. Um, so whatever happened, my body couldn't handle it. But also, I've been carrying these secrets around and you know, and we were adults. We had a family. There, there were there was pressures and stuff. But it just, you know, addictions really become a problem when they become a problem. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I would say it was around that age. It was around the kids were there, and and we uh, we almost lost it all because of it. You know, we and and that's why this book is actually a positive book. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> because we didn't. Uh, Andrea gave me one last chance. Uh, and an ultimatum, because people always ask me. I mean, you're the guy from Great Big C. How did you stop drinking? And you know, it's and the truth is that I uh, I always tell the joke. I embraced my higher power, and her name is Andrea. Yeah. And um, you know, I don't think I uh, she she gave me this ultimatum, and uh, I I heard it. You mm -hmm. know, that was my I guess moment of clarity. And I knew what I stood to lose. And I don't know. I mean, I tried so many times and so many ways to stop and could not. And um, she gave me the one good reason I needed to actually get it done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had to make serious changes in our lives. We had to leave. I had to leave the band ultimately because yep. the band didn't stop. Mm -hmm. and, I had, and then I had to leave Newfoundland. Yep. Because it was just such a precarious culture for uh, for an addict to try and live in, and I had a reputation that loomed large uh, <laughs> as the as the biggest partier in town. 
Mm. So big changes, big life changes. Uh, and, you know, that's that set us on a journey that's we're on now. Like it's but it's not boring. <laughs> it's yeah. interesting. It was a lot of work, but it was worth it. Yeah. You well, know, definitely worth it. Was it easy to quit drinking? No. Was it worth it? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've learned that, you know, when things are really difficult, that usually means they come with a greater reward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, facing all of our demons and, and like really digging deep into what made us tick and what was wrong, you know, first of all, th that doesn't stop. We, we do that every day. Um, but second of all, it's, it's what has allowed us to, to be free. You mm -hmm. know, like you talk about this vulnerability. Well, there's a freedom from it, from being able to say our truth and what this is all of our junk and everything that happened. And as ugly as it is, look at where we are now. So if we can do it, if, if the two of us can do it, and we're clowns compared to a lot of people, <laughs> you know, anybody can do it. That's kind of, that is not kind of, that is 100% what we wanted to come out of this book. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if our vulnerability shows somebody else a path or the ability to do it or gives them a little bit of strength or hope to, to try to, to put themselves on a better path or a more healthy path, that's what we wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's, uh, I love, I love the story and the whole dynamic of your marriage. I like the way you guys talk to each other. It's uh, very endearing and it's, uh, <laughs> you guys, you guys feed off each other in good, healthy ways, I believe. And the interesting thing, talking about feeding off each other too, when we talk about these early days, uh, you say everything was so great and it was the party all night, sleep all day, kind of rock star-ish life. And, uh, and then, uh-oh, we got pregnant <laughs> and, and things had to change. And, you know, I honor you for not continuing to drink through being pregnant. But it sounds like that's where, oh, we had to stop running and hiding in alcohol and be ourselves now. And these other, these other I mean, that's just what I'm hearing from what, what you're telling me is, is this hiding and, and partying as a way to escape all these inner demons, so to speak, uh, kind of came to a head because here comes a child and uh, it's an interesting set of circumstances. Is that, is, am I correct in saying that though? I mean, would you guys say you were kind of maybe without being conscious of it, escaping some of your inner issues and demons by just living the way you were in the early days? Uh, well, I'd say for sure for me. Um, and, and obviously Sean had already said that because that's what, how he needed to um, manage his secret that he was holding on to. Um, but for me, mm -hmm. absolutely. It was, it was a great way to not face reality. Um, and, and truth be told, Phil, once you have a kid, you also want better for them. Right. So yeah. I didn't want, as, as things started continuing to deteriorate with Sean and me and our marriage and his, when he was still drinking, I didn't want my boys to see that this was an okay thing to accept from a partner. I didn't want them to be who I was when I was their age, watching mom and dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wanted them to to expect more and to want more. And, you know, that's the power of not only sobriety, but of having kids, which I'm not saying people should go out and have kids. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, like... definitely not. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> no kids. But don't, like. Don't multiply and replenish you know, the earth. Just... <laughs> go ahead. No, no, no. Um, it just, you know, being sober for me, because I think it was two different things for Sean and I, it, it forced me to really 
see what was going to have to be important for me. And that was number one, my kids. Mm -hmm. And then number two, Sean and I. Yeah. So Isn't it number two? <laughs> yeah, he gets to be know, number two more ways than one. <laughs> I've told you that. <laughs> I don't been, disagree. I, don't, I, I don't dis It's more than I deserve. Number two is, is still a silver medal in That's my mind. Right. Yeah, it's still up on the list. I, you know, as you talk about that with the kids too, isn't it interesting? I've got two boys myself, as we mentioned. Uh, as you become a parent, as you describe too, and most parents I think can attest to this, you start to project outwardly, like you said, about, oh, my childhood and I don't want my kids. You, you always want them to have the better experience and the better life and you know, stand on the shoulders of your experience and go somewhere even better and higher than, than you could have in a good way. And uh, so it sounds like having kids has been a good thing, albeit challenging, I would attest. I've got eight and 11 year old boys, uh, so they're not all grown up yet, but <laughs> you start to see the various challenges at the various stages of development. And then all the things that come out as your deep love as a parent of how you want them to have the best, but it makes you more selfless in the process just by default because you have to take care of these kids. You have to feed them, put them to bed and <laughs> and maybe play with them once in a while and stuff like that. So it's an interesting, you know, we talk about a set of circumstances that shifted dramatically sounds like for you too, because you had kind of the care, carefree rock star life and the drinking and the partying and then, uh, this shifted gears. Sean, what would you say uh, as far as, now I understand you You finally revealed your secret. Uh, was it in 2014? Uh, I mean, it took you a lot of years to get to this place where you could. Can you talk to me about, about that? And if you want to touch on some of what we just were, we can go back to that too. But um, that's my next question. <laughs> uh, getting to this place where you were able to to come forward, so to speak, with your secret. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it was in 2014 and uh, I had been in recovery a couple of years and have been doing work in that community, just addict to addict really, and uh, trying to help and work with people who are addicted. And so I was at a breakfast, a recovery breakfast, and I saw, I met this young fellow, uh, at the table who said he was a stranger to me. His job wasn't to introduce me, because I do have some notoriety up here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was gonna be the main keynote speaker at this uh, event. There's about 450 people at, in this room. And he got up in front of me and in five minutes talked about how he'd been sexually abused by uh, his hockey coach. Mm. And how that had the impact on his life was that he became a, uh, an alcoholic and a drug addict for years, oh. and now he was just in recovery. And uh, but he was so frank and so straightforward and simple, simple spoken, like very mm -hmm. clear and uh, and fearless. Like, you know, this was uh, I was seeing my my biggest fear unravel itself right in front of my eyes. And I, you know, in my, my brain, I thought he was going to explode or catch fire or, you know, meet some horrible fate. But he didn't. He, uh, he sat, came back down. He sat down next to me and uh, he seemed stronger. He seemed happier. He seemed lighter. He seemed like he just laid down a heavy load, was better off for it. And uh, mm -hmm. so he literally visually showed me how it could be done. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I saw an opportunity there. So I got up and uh, for the first time ever, I was supposed to speak about, you know, how, how my recovery was going. And instead I spoke about why I drank. And uh, I told everyone there and for the first time what had happened to me. And I've come to understand that people drink and use drugs for reasons. And uh, But that day, I mean, I was the first time I, I really told my secret. And, uh, you know, it, it changed my life. Yeah. And, you know, part of writing this book and, and being vulnerable and being open, I mean, I just, having lived uh, so long in, in, in the darkness of an addiction, that I really don't wish it on anybody. And while it's not a difficult thing to do, I really believe that addictions can be overcome if we get to the root cause of them. And that's a very painful thing to do often. Like, what is the truth behind your reason why? Mm-hmm. And but I believe that if you do that work, if you're willing to not give up um, and do that work, you can be successful. And that's what I really genuinely want for anyone, because I would not for all the effort and hard work and pain that I went through, I would not I would I would never want to go back to where I was. Mm -hmm. It was all worth it is what I'm trying to say. It was all worth it. And anyway, that day I saw people. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just instead of telling people how to do something, just show them. And uh, I try mm -hmm. to live my life now every day just by showing them. And with regards to kids, we've been very open with ours and very honest. And they know and understand what happened to me. And they know what they really know is that their dad quit drinking for them. Their dad quit drinking and they know how. Mm -hmm. But I hope that what they learn from me or what they take away, their takeaway is, is that, you know, life is going to throw some difficult things at you. But if you are fearless, um, you can you can overcome them. Right. If you're brave and and for every difficult thing you overcome, you you overcome, you become stronger. You they those those things in life that are difficult by overcoming them one at a time, you become a stronger human being. And that is what I want my kids to be. I don't mm -hmm. want them to be rich. I don't, uh, you know, I don't want them to, I want them to have, I want them to have the strength to not only survive life, but to succeed. And by success, I mean, be happy. Mm. Be yeah. happy in what you choose to do. And usually that for me means doing what you love to do. Yeah. So strength is something that um, I hope is what we're able to show them through this book and through our lives by example every day you yeah. know yeah. my dad quit drinking they know it's a hard thing to do yeah. but you but did it did. as you said largely I, for I, them I, yeah and I uh, you know I leading by example I was led to my uh, to telling my secret by a very very simple example and uh, that's how I, I hope to have an impact I mean just like uh, a sexual assault can lead to an addiction. The impact of the assault is the addiction that I suffered through for 30 years, 35 years. Um, if I can have a positive effect that has a similar impact that goes through someone's life by leading them to their own truth or saying something or showing them how to stop drinking and using drugs, then that's that's a that's a higher purpose. That's that's something worth doing. Yeah, and, and it's worth doing more than a lot of other things I could be doing. For a lot more money. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, I just believe that people can benefit from it, and I hope they do. I yeah. know I did. I think they will. 
I uh, appreciate you opening that up too. Uh, that's now when you say that was the first time had you told anyone privately i mean this is a public moment in front of a crowd of mostly strangers probably um had had you told andrea anything at all prior to this or anybody else or was that like literally the first time that you that you opened this up no i hadn't really told anybody but andrea had gotten a, a few earfuls about my religious background and stuff, especially when I was drinking. I don't remember a lot of these conversations, no. but she does. Yeah, so he would he would go on and on at nauseam about how evil priests, not evil, but how, you know, they weren't the hand of God, so on and so forth. And so I kind of gleaned from that that I thought that in my head there, there was more than emotional abuse, which is what he had always said. Uh, but he had never admitted it to me and I I didn't need him to because I knew what I think I knew what was going on but the day that they were live tweeting this event so the day that he said this I was able to experience it almost with him the minute mm. he did it the second he did it and I was completely gobsmacked I was floored it was it was a, a huge moment not only for him but for me I mean I was crying just as much as he was I would say because and I was in Newfoundland. He was in he was in Toronto area, and uh, it was it was one of those I could feel the weight lifting off of me, so I could only imagine what was being lifted off of him. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me, Sean, real quick um, about that. How how did that feel in that moment, and and the immediate aftermath? What was that feeling like? Because we're talking about some a very 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 heavy burden that you carried for literally decades. And then now just letting it out like like air out of a balloon or something. That's probably not even a good analogy. But talk to me about the feeling, if you would. How did that feel in that moment? It was just a huge relief to lay it down. It was um, I felt really warm. I felt like I was going to be okay because I didn't understand it right at the moment. But I and I do in retrospect. I do what I actually achieved that day was was the key to a successful recovery because I had I'd come to terms I'd admitted what had happened very publicly and and it, and you know I was living in denial I was I wasn't letting myself think about this either you know I wasn't trying to I didn't want that those memories those thoughts were still not allowed to exist in my mind and by not dealing with that the root cause of my addiction I mean this priest poured me my first drink mm. By not dealing with that, um, even though I, at that time I think I'd been in recovery for a couple of years, I think I would have failed. I don't think uh, I don't think that a, a recovery can be successful long term. It's probably not sustainable until you actually do the work, the hardest work, which is uh, dealing with the why. And I knew that day that I would I had finally just opened the book on the why. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now we now now we're going to get it. Now we're going to resolve this now. And and as a result of it, like as crazy as I still am, I don't, I don't, I don't want to drink anymore. Like I don't, I'm not tempted that way. I don't think about that. And for the first two years, that was a thing, right? But it's not now. And that night, just just to cap that off, Phil, that night mm -hmm. after after the speech that he had given, he had a gig booked in Toronto, and I was there for that gig because I flew in for it, and. Uh, it was an amazing event. Like it was, I had seen, I saw Sean lighter 
and and happier than I had ever seen him on stage. And I'd seen him be happy, you know, happy shanty man Sean McCann on stage plenty of times. <laughs> but this was a true peaceful happiness that and just joy in singing and joy in being on stage that I saw that night. And it was it was pretty amazing to watch. Wow. Yeah, music has been a big part of my recovery too. Like if you know, my guitar, Earl Brown, was a friend that never left me. It's still still the support. I don't I don't go to meetings. I don't really, I don't embrace a higher power other than Andrea here. Mm -hmm. I, uh, but I believe I don't have a religion. If I had to say I had a religion, it would be music because it, it does what religion does. It, it, it enables us to, to ask big questions of ourselves and our, the purpose of our lives. And, and it enables us to deal with difficult, very difficult emotions. And say things that maybe you can't speak. Yeah, say things that are really hard to say. It it allows it gives you a place for your emotions to run wild and be free and safe. And it's, it's a safe mm -hmm. place. That's what music is for me. Yeah. And it's an inspirational place, you know. So music is also truth and music combined are powerful weapons and hard to hard to lose when you have those on your side. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. I and I love the the way you're describing because I can feel it to an extent with you. I can feel that day and that night at that gig and that relief uh, just because I've, I've, you know, feel some of what you're expressing in this burden that you carried too and how relieving that must have felt. Um, it's an interesting thing we can do as human beings. And the thing about music, and that was one of the things you just answered something I was going to ask you about. We, we talk about music as medicine and you, it's mentioned in the book a little bit as well. Um, but you just explained some of that because I experienced that as well in my own way, uh, growing up, not with the same experiences. And I didn't grow up in the Catholic church, but, you know, divorce and my mom wasn't around and abandonment issues. And, and so I had anger issues and I gravitated to rock music and beat the hell out of drums. Uh, and, it, but it was such a, like, you feel literally in harmony uh, with, with something finally and your emotions, like you said, can run wild and you can express, as Andrea said, things can be expressed that can't be expressed uh, maybe just with normal words. Uh, so I, I appreciate that explanation. And, you know, I could, I would love to talk to you, especially because we got both of you for hours and hours, but I, out of respect to you and your time and uh, your day and your sex life, <laughs> I'm just kidding because you said that earlier. <laughs> All these things. Oh, don't uh, worry about don't worry about yeah, that. I'm not worried. Not based that on what I'm anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it, as we get ready to wrap up, guys, I just uh, what what counsel and advice do you guys have? So many people have unresolved childhood trauma of various sorts, and people are suffering, uh, whether it's in a relationship or in an individual basis. You know, maybe they have a roommate and they're dealing with problems because of it, and that regard and things like that what advice do you have for couples and individuals uh dealing with these same issues childhood trauma and substance abuse and addiction well i you know i said in the book if you if you are if you can do the work if you can put in the time to find out what's really hurting you like get to that really it's a dark place and it's gonna yeah. be hurt it's there's going to be a lot of hurt there, but if you can get there and then slowly work your way out of it by showing yourself the positive steps that you're taking to not do that anymore or to not be in that space anymore. Like I'm not drinking to numb myself from, from my sadness about 
the way my dad treated me, I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to listen to some awesome music or I'm going to have a chat with my friend. And, you know, there's going to be ups and downs on that. But if you can make a, a little bit of progress every day on that, you, all of a sudden you're going to find yourself in five feet away from where you started and you're, you're in a better place. And it's it's about doing the work and not giving up. Those are the two key things that I think we try to bring out in, in the book. Don't mm -hmm. give up. Just Just don't give up. It would have been so easy to walk away from Sean. It would have been really easy to walk away from Sean <laughs> and me. You know, at the same time, I would have been walking away from my own truth too. But we didn't give up and we didn't give up on each other and we didn't give up on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And as a result, our, our kids are going to be in a better, we're in a better place and our kids are going to be in a better place. The hardest Love things it. are the ones that are most worth fighting for. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's worth it. Like, I can't stress enough. The alternative, uh, we could have lived a different life and not been honest and open and uh, and not dealt with a bunch of stuff. And we probably could have existed our way through. Yeah, And sure. the threat of addiction would always be looming over me. And that's not the way we live now. And uh, so I just, uh, you know, and as, for, as long as I'm alive, I'll do whatever I can to spare anyone. Uh, the the path that I was dealt the cards that I were I was dealt because again I do believe it's it began on day four of my life in the, in the form of a a baptism but mm. you know there's there's always for for all these negative and bad really really bad things that happen uh, good things have happened too and good people have entered my life when I was open to it and certainly when I sobered up I started to see more of those people. Mm. And uh, you spoke a bit about anger. I, anger, <laughs> anger never wants to help us. It always wants to hurt. Mm. And I and yeah. I think the biggest burden for me was carrying the heaviest load was the anger that I carried my my for the majority of my life. And most of that was directed at myself because I blamed myself for what happened. But yeah. you know what? We just um, there are alternatives. There, it's worth. It's worth going through all that stuff to come out the other side. Just don't give up and you will. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate all that insight. That's very deep, simple uh, principles. We talk about uh, healthy ways to cope. Like you said, if you're dealing with something instead of maybe drinking or some other un maybe unhealthy choice, going for a run or visiting with friends. And it takes a lot of initiative. I just remember as you're talking, I remember back to this movie, I think Nicolas Cage with, uh, it's called The Weatherman, I think. But I, I think it was his father in the movie said, essentially, most of the time, the hardest choice and the right choice are the same thing. And you guys took the hard path here. And it sounds like it was the right path. And yeah, these things aren't easy facing ourselves and facing our imperfections and demons and uh, and roots of maybe poor behavior. You know, I've been through some of my own process, so I can relate in, in some of that as well. But, uh, I, you know, it, I just think of it like pulling weeds. I used to do that with my dad in the backyard, and he'd say, you got to get right down in there and pull it all the way out of the ground, pull it out by the root so that it doesn't stay and grow back. You could make it look better for a moment, but the weed's still there. And by you coming out in 2014 and finally – uh, finally just laying this out there and lifting your own burden the way you did, uh, I think is analogous to pulling out weeds like that. And uh, this was more than a weed in your life. I mean, this was a, a cause of some major, major 
problems, poor behavior, you know, substance abuse, but I honor the heck out of both of you <laughs> for this book. Do we, there's so much more I could say. I know this isn't easy and I appreciate everything you shared with, with me and with our audience. Is there, do we have any final thoughts as we wrap up here? No, just keep going, everybody. I know this is difficult times for all, all of us. So just don't give up. That's what I, yeah. that's what I always say to my kids. Don't give up. Yeah. yeah. The, these days are difficult. And uh, I don't know, in America and Canada, we, we found out early on that liquor stores could not be closed. They were deemed essential services because, <laughs> to quote our head of our main doctor, our head of public health, because our society has a dependence issue <laughs> that we have been reluctant to talk about and now is not the time <laughs> because we have to deal with the pandemic now. <laughs> so in short, yeah. like, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're in crisis now, please be careful. Yeah. Please be careful. Reach out to people. Um, you know, there's habits are really hard things to break, and now we're in a position where they're easy to form. So I just think mm. we're in a very tentative time, a very difficult time, especially for people who are prone to addiction. So be careful. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Get through it. Find other ways, but don't protect yourself as best you can. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I. Appreciate all that. And like uh, Andrea said several times, don't give up. I think that's a, one massive takeaway here. And uh, appreciate and honor both of you for, for not giving up. Again, the book, One Good Reason, A Memoir of Addiction and Recovery, Music and Love. I love the title and uh, love talking to both of you. Great, uh, just real amazing, interesting people. And uh, appreciate your story and sharing that with not only me, but the world. And uh, this book, uh, I think, is going to make a major impact. It's already out, so go pick up One Good Reason. It's on Amazon and everywhere you get books. So uh, with that, and for our audience, we appreciate and honor and uh, also are flattered that you spend time with us. And until next time, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.